All right, well, we are in the Feast of Tabernacles, this Exodus festival, Passover not being the only Exodus festival. And actually, we've been going through some Exodus themes for quite a while now in John, beginning a way back with the feeding of the 5,000. And we've seen in it all the fulfillments in the Exodus that Jesus has come to fulfill. Uh, all these incredible promises that we see through the themes of the Exodus. And last week, we, we looked at the first part of this festival and how Jesus spoke into it. It started with a big procession on the seventh day of this festival. A procession that started at the healing pools of Siloam. And it was this pool that uh, gathered from the Gihon. It was a spring from the Gihon. The Gihon being a river uh, that is mentioned in Genesis, in Eden. And then they would take this water as hundreds of thousands of people gathered at the Feast of Tabernacles and they would proceed all the way up to the temple. And as they were going, they would see all of these tabernacles that had been set up because as the people gathered and as the, the people in Jerusalem gathered for this extraordinary, celebrated this extraordinary festival, kind of like we put up a Christmas tree, they, they would put up a little tabernacle, a little tent, and it would be made of branches and leaves. And then as they keep going, they eventually go through uh, the, the gate and in towards the temple and there would be all kinds of different ceremonial things that go on, and eventually this water is poured out on the altar, this water-pouring ceremony. And the water was to represent the Spirit. And it was to represent a messianic period that was to come, but also to remember back to the Exodus when Moses struck the rock and water gushed forth. And you had these hundreds of thousands of people with blowing trumpets and singing and all kinds of celebrations going on. Then the next day, it says that Jesus stood up and said, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within him. It pointed back, but it also pointed forward to a new creation, to this new Jerusalem uh, where water would flow, where the Spirit of God would be, where his presence would be forever. And Jesus is saying, I am the one who's come to pour out the Holy Spirit. And then, of course, what happens later in Acts, we see that the Holy Spirit was poured out as the church was born. So that's the context of what Jesus said then, but that wasn't the only thing going on. That wasn't the only big celebration on day seven. And before we get to what Jesus now says, about the second part of the celebration. They're already in the crowd very divided. Some are angry. Some wanted him arrested. Others say he is the Messiah. It's tense. I mean, this is like the great claim that they're waiting for someone to come and bring. And some are saying, yeah, this is him. He's right. This big claim about being the Messiah and coming and bringing the presence, the Spirit of the Lord with him. Yeah, this is the new Moses. This is the better Moses. This is the Messiah who's come to save us. And they would mean different things by what it meant to be saved. But they were thinking, yes, he is the one who's come to save us. He's the Messiah. And then others are saying, no, it's blasphemy. You can't say that. And of course, the divisions are sharp. 
the chief priests and the Pharisees are very angry. And it contrasts the temple guards who are, don't think like bouncers, think uh, more priestly people. They're from the Levites. They're there to help guide worship, not just to kind of stand in a door and look tough. And so they come back to the chief priests and the Pharisees, and we see that in verse 45. And they're saying, we've never seen anyone speak like this before. They're, they're cautious about stepping in and doing anything here because this truly might be the Messiah. It's an openness. The Pharisees' response is not the same. And so you've got this group in power who are trying to hold on to their power and their privilege, and they are having a real hard time of controlling these crowds. In the evening, after dusk on that seventh day, a lamp lighting ceremony would have taken place. Now, this is the night before Jesus gets up to teach, okay? The eighth day is the bonus day that happens every seven years, and it is about teachers of Israel getting up and preaching, proclaiming the law. And so when Jesus did that on the eighth day, he's saying, I'm a teacher of Israel. So no wonder the Pharisees are a bit put out. In the evening, this great lamp lighting ceremony takes place. The temple was so extraordinarily lit up that you could see it for miles and miles and miles around. Huge pillars of fire were lit. This wasn't just a few candles. It wasn't like, you know, the acoustic gig that you love to go to in that favorite cafe of yours with a few candles flickering in the background. Maybe I show my age with that, actually. But this is blazing light. And it was actually a celebration of God's Shekinah glory that had been with them in the wilderness. The glory of the Lord in fire and cloud had led the people out of Egypt and towards the promised land. And the people danced through the night to this music of the Levitical orchestras while holding burning torches in their hands and singing songs of praise. This was a big celebration. This was like the crescendo of the whole thing. The light was so bright from the huge burning candelabras that if they could, they, they could see these things all over Jerusalem and everyone is drawn towards them. And it's all taking place, we know, from what we read at the end of this text in verse 20, in the temple courts near the treasury. Now, why is that important? Why is that even mentioned here? What's the point of John including that? Well, that's where the fires had burned brightly the night. That is where the fires burned brightly. And then Jesus stands in that same place. After the fires have been extinguished and then teaches on what it is for the light of God to come. On that eighth day, he taught before these extinguished lamps about fires of glory. And the extinguished lamps would actually be a reminder, a sad reminder to the people of Ichabod, which means glory departed. 
as Ezekiel prophesied 600 years earlier, the glory of the Lord had departed from Israel. There would be a sadness to what was going on on that eighth day. Although there was this great celebration, this great remembrance, and this great hope for what might come in the future, there's a sadness of what the true reality of Israel is at the time. No one can remember when the glory of the Lord had last come. No one had seen his glory. But through the prophets, God's people knew the light of the glory would return. To Isaiah, God said in verse 42.6, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. I love the way Micah describes it. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. He will bring me out into the light. I will see his righteousness. Those who were seeking God yearned for his glory to return. For the light of life, the light that exposes, judges, and cleanses. For holy fire to make everything right again and to keep his promise to bless the nations. Every people group of the world to be blessed through Abraham's nation. Hoping in God meant to trust that his light would burst into the darkness and illuminate the world with beauty and holiness, mercy and justice. You know, without the sun's warmth and light, I'm sure this is not new to you, we would be a frozen lifeless ball. I say we would be, the earth would be, we would not exist. It provides energy and warmth for plants and oxygen, for all forms of life, right? There'd be no beauty, no reflection of glory, no nothing to delight in, no true life. But in Genesis 1, God took a blank canvas and began his creative work. The Spirit hovered over the deep. God the Father spoke, let there be light. And through the Son, the Word, life began. The earth, a canvas for God to bring true and beautiful life. Humanity, his finishing flourish, created in his image. All life is a gift from God. As he made it, he gave something that maybe would be quite easy for us to miss. He gave us this daily rhythm, and it was to remind his creation of his creator. It wasn't there was morning and then there was evening. It was e- there was evening and then there was morning. Have you ever noticed that? That's how the Hebrew puts it. And the reason for that is that out of the night, out of the darkness, new life every day dawns 
as the light shines across the surface of the earth. Each day a reminder that in the beginning was nothing, a void, emptiness, a long dark night, but God overcame darkness with light. That's who he is. That's what he does. And actually the future of creation is to be permanently bathed in light. That's always been the trajectory of God's story. Our rhythm of, of evening and then morning is actually a glorious sign of grace that one day there will be no night and only light. Even after the fall in Genesis 3, each day there is still new and beautiful dawns. We get new and beautiful dawns, don't we? Creation shouting, his mercies are new every morning. Each day, a dawning of hope. Light is bursting into the darkness and into the most dismal of nights. Maybe you are going through a dismal, dark night in your life. There is hope. For where there is darkness, we know that light overcomes. Can I recommend something to you? A few months ago, I was listening uh, to one of our friends, Alan Frow, an elder at Southlands in California, uh, who are part of the advanced movement of churches. And he was just talking about some of the rhythms that he has in his life, some of the ways in which he tries to stay connected with God day in and day out. And he said one thing that's really helped him is going outside to pray. And at first I'm like, yeah, yeah, you live in California, mate. I try doing that in Glasgow every day. But through the summer, I, I decided I would try it and uh, got up and kind of sneaked out the back door early in the morning and would just sit. And more recently, it's actually got more joyful because in the, in the first kind of days that I was doing it, it was light pretty much all the time, <laughs> um, which was great. But actually, I've been experiencing the dawn and the bird song as I've been praying and opening my Bible in the mornings, and it is beautiful. There's something about it that's just transforming. There's something about it that just says hope. Light is shining on you. Here is grace for you this morning. I recommend you do that. Give it a go. I know peeling yourself out of bed is tough, but it's worth it. Just try it. God's glorious light came to the Israelites in the Exodus to save them from the Egyptian armies. A pillar of God's glory. That's what they're remembering. remembering. Fire to follow in darkness, cloud by day. God raised this pillar, this light, this cloud, to lead them from their dark night of slavery and oppression to the light of the promised land, right? God, in his mercy, saved them from Egypt and set them on course for joy and abundance and life and fruitfulness. Just like the light of God's glory, unfiltered, unmediated sunlight, however, is too much. It's unbearable. That's why when you are sunbathing on your holidays and you're looking up to the sun and you're just enjoying bathing in its light and its warmth, I bet your eyes are closed because it's too much. You're, the retina 
your, the flesh around your retina will actually burn <laughs> if you look straight into it. It's too much. Not only was fire and cloud a sign of God being with the people of Israel, bringing life and joy, it also was his all-consuming holy fire. God bringing justice, burning up the ugliness of a sinful world. Justice, what we need. (laughs) They don't realize it. But actually here, in this passage, as the Pharisees and the chief priests get upset at what's going on and these huge claims of Jesus, he's actually demonstrating through them of God's light exposing sin. Through their rejection of Jesus as Messiah, they actually show that they have a ugly, holy facade that they are trying to maintain. What will become clearer and clearer through John is that these Pharisees and the religious elites are actually full of hypocrisy and pride. The guards, the priests from the Levites, they, as we saw, really weren't sure. (laughs) Maybe this man really could be the Messiah. But the Pharisees, verse 47, scoff. How could you believe this mob? Now that phrase gives them away. It said that they were part of an urban and religious elite who saw country folk who were most likely less educated as people who couldn't recite the Torah and therefore unable to be true Israelites. They may even have believed what was found in the writings of the school of Rabbi Mir, that the unlearned are no different to animals. Then when Nicodemus speaks up, a Pharisee, one of their own, he reveals their hypocrisy. He simply points out that they are supposed to hear Jesus out before they shut him down. That's what the law says. You're talking about the law and using the law to justify yourself, but you're not actually being obedient to the law. And that's what Jesus will go on to say in passages that we'll come to. You think you're able to fulfill the law. You think you're able to justify yourself. You think you're all right. You think you're fine, but you're not. You need me. That's what Jesus is saying. They're trying to shut down Jesus, using their power to keep rewriting in order to ensure that it fits their narrative. The temple guards and Nicodemus are in contrast to the humility that we do see in Nicodemus here. And, sorry, the temple guards in Nicodemus are in contrast, are contrasting uh, the Pharisees here. They're showing them what it is to truly be open, to truly seek truth and not just maintain whatever is going to suit your narrative. Those who hold power and privilege do not want to give it up easily. But here's what we see here. Jesus is happy to shine a light on it and expose it for what it is. 
It's one of the reasons we shouldn't despair at the revelations of sin that we're seeing in the church at the moment. If you've been paying attention to that stuff, the latest one probably that may affect a number of you in this room who have been to Soul Survivor over the years is Mike Pilavachi. And yet it's really sad. If you don't know the story, come and chat to me about it at the end. don't want to take up our time with it. But basically a, a minister using his power and influence to bully and harass and it's really quite ugly. Yes, it's sad, but perhaps God is doing something more meaningful with the church. Perhaps he is exposing, eliminating, bringing into the light what needs to be brought into the light. Jesus cares and he's cleansing his church. Have you noticed in the Exodus story, Exodus chapter 14, when the cloud turned to this uh, pillar of light for the Israelites, it actually turns to darkness for the Egyptians. So on one side it looks dark, on the other side it looks light. It says this, Then the angel of God, who had been travelling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night the cloud brought darkness to the one side and light to the other. So neither went near the other all night long. God's glory illuminates and exposes all. And with it comes justice. With it comes judgment. Some of you remember when God gives the commandments um, to, call, to, to Moses. He calls Moses out and he gets him to climb this mountain, Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai, to mediate as a priest for the people. He was to be kind of like their spiritual sunglasses, filtering the glory of God. A boundary had to be put in place at the foot of the mountain where God's glory had, was falling because they needed to be warned about what it would mean if they were to see God in all his glory, the, the glory of this light that would come his cloud, his presence. And when it did, the Bible says that everyone in the camp trembled. There was no exceptions. Maybe you're sitting there, you're thinking, well, this is all good for some people, the religious types. No, no, there's no exceptions. If you were to see the glory of the Lord now, you would tremble. God calls Moses to the top, but when he arrives, God actually sends him all the way back down. You're going, what's he doing that for? He says, go all the way back down to warn the people so that they do not force their way through to see the Lord and many of them perish. Holiness brings life, beauty. But holiness also brings death, justice. Who can stand before the Lord? The light of God's glory symbolized with these bright torches of fire at the Feast of Tabernacles is a sign of the life that God is bringing, but it's also a warning, a reminder of God's holiness and justice. So there were two ways for us to respond 
for the Israelites to respond, for the people uh, that day to respond. Either build walls and pretend you're okay, or to wait and hope. For the Israelites, that was their two choices. Do we, do we build something around us? Do we have a holy facade? Do we make it look like we're all right, we're righteous, we're just, we're, just, we're okay, we're going to be all right before God? Do we pretend? Or do we wait and hope? Willing to be exposed so that they can have true life in God. The problem with option one is it's like trying to impersonate the glory of God and his life-giving presence with the light of a kid's torch. And God's true light is coming. The light of God is not only a saving light, it is a light that illuminates all things, and we need to be really clear on this. It exposes the truth. It removes any pretense. It shows people for who they really are. Now, I actually don't have any recent experience of this, okay? But for those of you who may even have been out last night, and you made it here with the assistance of three coffees, well done. You may well have stayed to the end of the night, and the music comes to an end, and so too do all, does all that dim lighting. And suddenly these lights are turned on in the club and everything suddenly looks very different. You see everyone and everything in a very different way. Those who had felt so confident, so good looking, have suddenly sobered up and are feeling a bit exposed. And in some ways, that's how people try to live. As if they are in some low light lit club and they're trying to see themselves in that kind of light. Trying to avoid any stark lighting that it might expose the bits of themselves that somehow they think they can just keep covered up even to themselves. Don't want to confront it. But that's not real life. And it won't lead to true life. It's a false beauty. God offers us so much more than that, doesn't he? For those living in false light, you actually need God to end the night. You need him to turn on those lights. To turn off this false lighting, no matter how uncomfortable that might be. Now, in these courts, before these extinguished lamps, and all this debate and confusion is going on, Jesus gets up to say something extraordinary. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You could actually interpret it. I am the lamp of the world. He's, being he's, he's using the props. Here's the Lord of Psalm 27, the Lord who is my light and my salvation. People in the synagogues are likely familiar 
with the other Gospels by this stage. And they'd be listening to this message of John being read aloud. I expect at least some of them will connect Luke 9 and the Mount of Transfiguration when they hear this story. That's when Peter, James and John accompany Jesus um, on a prayer hike and Moses and Elijah appear and they begin to chat about his departure. That's how the NIV says it. But it is literally exodus. They're talking about his exodus. And what was Jesus' exodus? Well, his exodus was salvation. Not from Egypt and Pharaoh, from Rome and Caesar, but from sin. A way of escaping what would come because of our sin. A way of saving us. And he makes this invitation now to all. Now, on the Mount of Transfiguration, do you remember that Peter says a really weird thing? He says, should we pitch a tent? And you think, why is he saying that? Because he's thinking of the Feast of Tabernacles. He's thinking of the Exodus. He's thinking of the Messiah and salvation to the world. He's thinking about the light of the world bursting into the darkness. He's thinking about the Spirit of God being poured out like the rock in the wilderness and the Spirit being gushing out in this new messianic era. He's saying, this is the fulfillment, isn't it, to the Feast of Tabernacles? He gets it. And now Jesus has come as the light that shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Think about being in that synagogue and hearing what Jesus has to say here and thinking, wow. The temple's probably destroyed, is destroyed by now, but we've heard all the stories or some of them had been there. Wow. Jesus is the one. He's the light. He's the one who's come to bring about life as it was supposed to be. So how are you going to respond? When the light of of the glory of God shines, when we see it represented in the light of the dawn, when we are confronted with Jesus, the light of the world, and all his beauty and holiness, we are given a choice. A simple choice. Do we receive his invitation and follow him like the Israelites followed the cloud and fire? Or do we keep pretending? Keep trying to be good enough? Keep trying to become the person that I so want to be? And cover up all the imperfections? And then end up like the Egyptians? receiving the justice we deserve. By the time we get to verse 20, no one sees them, John says. Why? With all this controversy and all the power 
that the people who were against him had. Why wouldn't they seize him in this moment? Such a significant moment in the calendar. That seventh year, the eighth day, the, the teacher, teachers of the law are supposed to get up and proclaim what is true. And Jesus gets up and makes these huge claims. They believe he's false because they're not open to it. They're not looking. They're not seeking for truth. They just want their own narrative to be told. They want to maintain this self-righteousness instead of the right, running to the righteousness of God. They don't want for their sin to be illuminated and seen. They want it covered up. Why wouldn't they seize him and arrest him? They've got the power. Because God is sovereign. Because God is in control. Because God didn't want it yet. Because it was not his hour, John says. When the hour did come, all those months later, something remarkable happened as Jesus died on the cross. What was that? Darkness covered the land. Why? Because the judgment of the cloud that was the dark on the side of the Egyptians was absorbed by Christ. Jesus received the judgment of the night. And on the third day, after his death, after receiving our judgment that we deserved, after making a way for us to have that curtain torn in two, for us to enter into his holiness, for us not to be burned up when we cross the boundary, Jesus rises from the dead in glorious light. And the light has burst into the world, a light to the Gentiles, a light to us. A new dawn has come. There is hope for you. And his name is Jesus. In Revelation, it says there will be no night, be no sun. Why? Because Jesus is the light of life for all mankind. True life will flourish in his warm and bright rays forever and ever. In the final chapter of the whole Bible, we get a picture of what Jesus has achieved for the future of the world. And it brings together all that John has been showing us for the last few chapters. It says this, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life. Think last week as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun. For the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. Jesus has come. He is the light of the world and he leaves us all with a choice. 
Will you be like the Pharisees and pretend you've got this? Will you keep dancing in the false light, in the low light? Or will you allow yourself to be exposed in humility and receive your Saviour's life for you that is eternal and good? Will you receive his love and enjoy him forever? Will you delight in the life of God? Will you delight in the glory that has come in Christ and that we can now enter into? Let me, I know I'm going on, but let me finish with one story, okay? Do you remember the time, remember the context here, okay, is that the crowd want a greater Moses, a better Moses to defeat the Romans, just like he did with the Egyptians, okay? But Jesus is saying he's a much better savior than that. Do you remember when Moses says, I want more of your glory. I want to see your glory, he says. And God says, you can't. Because he knows that he will die if he does. And what does he do? He says to climb up this mountain or up this rock. And as he does, he gives, he provides a cleft in the rock to hide in. So Moses hides in the rock. And as he hides in the rock, God puts his hand over that cleft in the rock. And his glory passes by. Now, Moses was the mediator. And that's what the people wanted. But Jesus is God himself. And so when he says, I am the light of the world, he says, come hide in me and I will give you light. Come hide in me, in my sacrifice for you, in who I am, fully man, fully God, the only one who can save you, the only one who can bring you into the light. He's saying, I am the cleft, come and hide in me, hide in Christ. Should we get on our feet?